I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. and welcome to okay let me tell you why you're wrong today i wanted to cover a topic that i'm sure almost all of you are somewhat familiar with but you might be a little light on the details as i'm sure you've already know since it's you know the episode title today we're going to be talking about monopolies why don't we play monopoly switch version We've got Star Wars Monopoly, Rasta Monopoly, Gallipolopoly, and Necrobopoly. Let's stick to original Monopoly. The game is crazy enough as it is. How can an iron be a landlord? Yeah, not so much the board game, but rather the anti-competitive state of a market with harmful consequences to consumers. So put away your thimbles and top hats, cancel your reservation at the hotel on Baltic Avenue, and know that at no point during the show will you pass go and collect $200. Sorry to bring the mood down, but even if we were going to be playing the board game, I can assure you from experience that I will win, it will get ugly, and someone will flip the board over at some point. Besides, everyone knows that the best way to play Monopoly is to cheat as often as and as flagrantly as possible, which is not just good board game advice, but also kind of ties into the theme of today's show. So what is a monopoly? Well, the super economic-y definition would be when there is a single producer within the relevant market which has high barriers to entry for a product with no close substitutes. We'll be breaking that down throughout the show, but for now, let's simplify the definition a tad and say that a monopoly exists when a single person or company is the only supplier of a given product or commodity. 
Now, as I'm sure you're aware, free market economics works best based on the existence of competition in the marketplace. Competition is what incentivizes innovation. It ideally creates a race to the top for quality and a race to the bottom for price. It's what makes the whole idea work. A monopoly is, well, the opposite. It's when there are no competitors causing the, the powerful market forces that would normally be in effect to break down entirely. Of course, this is not always a bad thing. And there is some contention over whether or not those market forces actually break down. But we'll get into that later. For now, let's start with the question of what does a monopoly look like? There are a few key signs that indicate a monopoly. The first is a shift towards true profit maximization. Now, you may be saying, wait a minute, Dave, aren't all businesses in a market economy trying to achieve profit maximization? And you'd be correct, but only because of that key word that I've conveniently placed into the question that I'm putting into your mouths in order to make my point. The key word is trying. A business, any business, wants to maximize profits, but they can't actually hit the, the true point of profit maximization because in a market with competitors present, they have to meet market demand for their product or else risk losing out to someone else. For each product that they make, there's what's called a marginal cost. It's, it, it's the cost added by making one more of the product. Now, if you take that cost, the, the, the cost it takes to make one more of whatever you're making and, and apply it to every number from two to infinity and throw it on a graph, you should wind up with an, an upward sloping line. In the most basic of economic terms, that's the theoretical supply line from the basic supply and demand graph that you're, you've probably seen if you've ever taken an economics course. For the purposes of our example here, let's say our company is making Monopoly board games. So there are certain costs required just to make one game. You, you need to pay a designer. You need to buy the machinery that's going to fabricate the pieces. You need to hire a workforce to run that machinery. Once you're up and running, though, and you roll that first complete board game off the assembly line, it's now going to cost you slightly more to make the next one and the one after that and so on. Because for each additional set that you make, you need to buy that much more red and green plastic, uh, that much more ink and cardboard, that many more sets of dice. That cost is the marginal cost. In a competitive market, you assume those marginal costs all the way up to the point of market demand so that everyone that wants one of your board games can get one. But by doing so, you wind up taking on that marginal cost because if you don't, those consumers will go elsewhere and buy some other board game like Sorry or Clue or the genuinely bizarre Don't Wake Daddy. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it. It's weird. But there's a point somewhat lower on that marginal uh, cost line 
where if you could only make fewer products, you would actually make more money. Because again, for each additional sale beyond that point, you are making a profit off the sale, but you're also incurring an additional cost to make that additional unit. In a perfect world, your company would produce only the perfect amount of units that are going to let you make the most profit without incurring the additional costs of having to make additional units. It's basically a, a, a profit sweet spot. And at least in the model, it's at a point which will create a supply less than that of what the market demands, which by doing so will shift the intersection point of supply and demand and that's thus drive up the price. Folks, I promise that I'm only going to describe a graph to you one more time during this episode. I try to keep myself to one an episode, but today I'm going to need two. Anyway, we'll get to that shortly. With no requirement to meet market demand in a monopoly, you, you get to the second major characteristic, which is being a price maker. With no competition to create a race to the bottom for price, your company can charge whatever they want because you control the supply. So now you've got your monopoly, if you can keep it. <clears throat> and that leads us into the third characteristic of a monopoly, which is high barriers to entry. You're making your board games. You've hit the point of profit maximization. You've set the price to be to your advantage, but all it would take to topple this really nice deal that you've got going for yourself would be for someone else to come along and start making a similar product to your own. Competitors would have plenty of incentive to do so because what with your price setting, you're clearly making a tidy profit and they're going to want to get in on that. Of course, if they do enter the market and start selling a knockoff of Monopoly called Oligopoly, then they're going to drive supply up, price down, and ruin your whole thing you've got going. So to protect your Monopoly, you need to create barriers to entry, things that will prevent new entrants into your market and ensure that you don't have to engage in any kind of real competition and, and all that nasty consumer surplus that comes with that. Now, barriers to entry can cover a wide range of things, some of which you, as, as a company already in the market, don't have direct control over. There are legal barriers to entry that can include patents, trademarks, intellectual property rights, and, and, and other kinds of licensing. And it's important to note that these are not necessarily bad things. In fact, if you're an inventor or a content creator, they're really good things. I think that we can mostly agree that if you invent something, then you deserve to benefit from that invention. In fact, patents were invented themselves in order to incentivize people to invent things. Trademarks and intellectual property rights are important for protecting the work of creators. And if you create something you should be able to hold exclusive rights to use it. Trust me, nobody wants to see my Batman fanfiction brought to life. And Warner Brothers holding the IP for that character is the only thing stopping that from happening. 
there can also be structural barriers to entry. And again, these are things that the monopolist doesn't put in place, but rather just a hard truth of the market that you're in. These can involve high capital requirements or scale economies. You yourself can't really give Amazon a run for its money through your Etsy shop because you can't possibly offer the same variety of goods or the kind of rapid international distribution that Amazon has. That kind of corporate infrastructure costs a lot of money to put in place. There are also the potential barriers created by network effects. Depending on the product, the value that a consumer gets from it can be directly related to how many other people are using it. This is true for things like social media networks, in that they become more valuable for networking as they get more users. But, but probably the best example is the Microsoft Office Suite. The value of a program like Microsoft Word is that it is ubiquitous. Everyone uses it, which means that if I write a Word file and I send you that Word file, you can open it, read it, interact with it. If you invented a new word processing program, and even if it was better than Word, you may hit significant barriers in that market because while I might try your new program and, and like it, if I send a file created in that program to someone else who doesn't have your software, then they won't be able to open the file. The value of, of it is then diminished because even though it may be technically better, it can't fully meet the needs of your potential customers, which is going to keep you out of the market for word processing software. Unfortunately for you though, no such structural barriers exist in the board games market. And that's where you've got your monopoly. I suppose there are legal barriers in that you, or, or in, in reality, Milton Bradley, can protect yourself through trademarks, but let's say that that's not enough to stop potential competitors. So now you have to move on to what we tend to think of more traditionally when we think of monopolistic barriers to entry, and that's strategic barriers. Strategic barriers can include aggressive moves towards potential competitors, either through advertising or product positioning, or what's called limit pricing. Limit pricing occurs when you get word that a competitor is, is setting up to enter your market. So you, you drive down your price to an extremely low level, so low in fact, that your prospective competitor, who will have to match that price should they enter the market, couldn't possibly make a profit, so they close up shop before they even get started. Consumers typically love limit pricing because all of a sudden you're getting that particular product at a really cheap price. The problem with it, of course, is that once that potential competitor shuts down and, and slinks away, the monopolist just jacks the price back up. It's why limit pricing is illegal in most places. Strategic barriers can also be things as, as simple as loyalty programs or contracting. If you're a 
reward member of a certain store and uh, a new competitor opens up across the street, you could start shopping there. But then you'd be giving up your 10% discount or your member rewards points. Strategies like that are designed to lock you in and prevent you from engaging with potential competitors, as well as tracking your purchase habits, but that's a topic for a different episode. Suffice to say, that kind of tracking is both scarier and more invasive than you think, while at the same time being much more mundane and actually potentially helpful than you're afraid of. The last characteristic of monopolies is that once you have your monopoly and you've blocked any potential competitors from entering the market, you can now engage in price discrimination, where you can sell a homogenous good at heterogeneous prices. So I think that you can see how bad that could... What? They don't. Too economic-y? Well, yeah, I know. That's the point of the show. Okay, let me explain that price discrimination model a bit more. So, if you have a total control over the supply of board games, and there are no close substitutes, then wouldn't you want to further profit maximize by selling your product for the exact price that each consumer is willing to pay? In earlier episodes, I've talked about the kind of internal valuation that we all do. Uh, if you've ever been in a store, and, and I think this probably happens most often at high-end clothing stores, and you've seen a, a jacket and thought, hey, that jacket looks nice. And then you check the price to find out that it costs $850 and thought, who on earth would pay that much for a jacket? Then you've engaged in internal valuation. You like the product. You would buy the product but they're charging way more than you're willing to pay for the product. Well, what if you, back to being a, the board game monopolist that you are, could tell exactly what that internal valuation was for all of your consumers, or potential consumers, and then price your product according to the high end of each consumer's demand? You'd be able to make even more profit. Now, normally, a company can't really do this because they have to make enough supply that it forces them to abide by the market price set by demand in order to appeal and, and, and fall within the internal valuation of as many consumers as possible or risk being beaten out by competitors. But if you completely control supply, then you can sell however many you want, which means that provided you can find the people with the highest demand and, and thus the highest internal valuation of your product, you could sell it at exactly the highest price that each of them is willing to pay. Now, if you think that this kind of perfect information scenario is impossible, well, for one, think about that member rewards program that you're a part of. But even simpler than that, you could just start holding auctions for your board games. An auction's a great way to find the consumers with the highest willingness to pay for a given product. So that's what a monopoly looks like. But if you're thinking that all of this sounds bad, but hey, the market's the market, and 
If you don't want to pay the monopoly price, you don't have to. Well, there are some pretty big drawbacks to monopolies, at least in the theoretical model. When a market functions properly, the price sits at the intersection of marginal cost and market demand. And from that intersection, there's a producer surplus, which is profit, and a consumer surplus, which is the benefits that you as an individual and that society as a whole derive from the purchase of those products in the market. Consumer surplus in the, in the car market is the added convenience to the driver for being able to get where they're going faster and, and travel further than they would without a car as well as to society for every car owner's ability to get places quickly and to go places they normally couldn't. In the board game market, the consumer surplus would be the enjoyment that the person gets from the game that they bought, as well as the benefit to the people who play the game with them. However, in a monopoly, with the realized supply shifting down the minimal marginal cost, And an expansion of the area within the graph, and, and again, I, I promise this is the second graph I'm describing. This is also the last one. So there's an expansion of the area within the graph of producer surplus. Again, uh, the place that takes the hit the most in this geometric shape formed by the lines is consumer surplus. Fewer people are getting the benefits of your product because you're making fewer of them. And those that do get the benefits of your product are paying more for it. The area that would have been consumer surplus under, under normal competitive market conditions and, and where it is under monopoly is what's called a deadweight loss. It's the potential surplus or benefit that's being lost by operating at under market optimal conditions or less than market optimal conditions. Now, at least that's in the theoretical model. It can get a little murkier once we bring it out of the model and into the real world. First off, there is, of course, the idea of having a natural monopoly. Uh, a, a natural monopoly falls into the category of, of markets that have naturally high barriers to entry. So high, in fact, that if businesses had to engage in, in full market competition, there'd be no way for any of them to reach profitability, no less maximized profits. The broad definition would be that a natural monopoly can and should exist in a market where the average cost of production is at its minimum when there is only one producer. What that means is that there are some markets that, by their nature, do better and run more efficiently when a monopoly exists. With a but. A, a pretty big one, too. A good example of a natural monopoly would be in the market for electricity. We all need electricity, at least those of us who aren't Amish. But if the market for electricity were a free and open one, there'd be little to no competition in it. This is due to the massive costs involved 
in not just building and maintaining the plants to produce electricity, but also the infrastructure required to transmit it to all of our homes. In a market for electricity with multiple competitors, prices would be through the roof to make up for the sunk costs involved in entering the market. There would also be a mess of electrical lines as, as each competitor would have to build out their own transmission infrastructure and rural areas would not have electricity at all as there aren't enough people living out there to make it economically viable to run power lines out to them. The solution to this, as originally created by John Stuart Mill, who we will spend a good deal of time talking about in future episodes, was a natural monopoly. We let a single producer have the market to themselves. Now, I said there was a but, and and that is, when it comes to natural monopolies, they're typically heavily regulated by the government, precisely to ensure that consumers get all of the benefits from the single producer without any of the supply shortages or price gouging that comes from a monopolistic situation. Of course, natural monopolies are still monopolies and, and come with their fair share of liabilities. Highest among them is that a natural monopoly, once seated in that comfortable position with government regulation preventing them from charging unfair prices, has little incentive to innovate or improve their product. In the theoretical world where there are multiple electric companies in direct competition with each other, the, the flip side of all of the problems that I laid out is that those companies would have invested heavily in improving the efficiency and output of their power plants. They would have converted to underground power lines decades ago rather than, than deal with the exposure that above-ground power lines have. And by now, we'd probably have figured out how to transmit electricity wirelessly, and we'd all be powering our homes through Wi-Fi or something like that. Of course, again, rural areas would still be in the dark, and we'd all be paying quadruple what we pay now for electricity, so take your pick there. There is an interesting solution that was developed for... The, the problems that come from granting natural monopolies. Uh, it was developed by uh, Dr. Harold Demsitz. I really hope I'm pronouncing that right. He's uh, a professor out of UCLA. He suggested that you can realign the incentive structure to, to favor innovation by replacing competition in a market with competition for a market. Basically, with the prospect of a natural monopoly being a pretty desirable thing for, for, for a business, you use that to create a kind of auction among prospective businesses for the right to hold that natural monopoly. Then you hold them to the terms of, of satisfactory performance under the threat of losing their monopoly. With Dempsey's auction, it, it's possible to grant a natural monopoly while still incentivizing the company receiving it to still constantly try to improve their product and respond to consumer demand. Now, on the other side, Milton Friedman 
it didn't think that monopolies were much to be concerned with, at least so long as they weren't supported by government intervention. His take on the threat of monopolies can be best summed up with this quote here. So the fact is that the best protection of the consumer, the best offense against monopoly, let me put it another way. There's an old saying, if you want to catch a thief, you set a thief to catch him. If you want to catch a businessman monopoly, you set another businessman to break it down. You don't send a government civil servant after him. The most effective anti-monopoly legislation you could possibly have would be free trade. Now, I like a good deal of what Friedman has to say about economics. But I think that here, he has a tendency to radically underestimate the incentives for companies to monopolize. And his answer of free trade may have held water in the 1980s, but in the modern world, I think that the potential for a global monopoly is much more likely than it was back then. In the modern context, his answer seems more than a little glib. Even in his day, he had to admit that non-assisted monopolies were possible, though he, he did consider them to be very rare. In another interview, he broke down the two non-assisted monopolies that he had found, you know, through the course of his studies. It's very hard. In fact, I have tried to, I have tried to uh, consider, and George Stigler is a greater authority on this than I, so we, maybe we ought to get him in to uh, add to this, what private monopolies there are that have been able to maintain themselves over any long period of time without government assistance. And I have myself only been able to construct two. One is an international one, the De Beers Diamond Monopoly. It really is an extra... I don't understand it. Maybe George can tell us the answer. But it has been successful over a very long period. And the second was a New York Stock Exchange. Not more recently, because since 1934, it's had the help of the SEC. But before 1934, from about the Civil War to 1934, so far as I know, it had no government support, and yet it did maintain an effective monopoly. But almost every other case, you have temporary monopolies develop, and if the government doesn't come in to shore them up, they fall to pieces. The railroads became a monopoly only because they were able to get the Interstate Commerce Commission established. Trucking is a monopoly because the ICC keeps out competitors. And you can go down the line and find that one hypothetical monopoly case after another derives from governmental assistance and support. So I think the answer to your question, and you and I have the same objective here, is less government intervention, not more. Again, I think that in the pursuit of making his point against government interference in, in creating monopolies, and, and within his general laissez-faire view of economics, Dr. Friedman tends to wave away the threat that monopolies could pose to markets with a little too much of a cavalier attitude. But he is a brilliant economist, so let's, let's take his idea and, and, and unpack it a bit. Milton Friedman is positing that monopolies aren't really possible because there will always be another potential competitor around the corner. If someone out there is making money there's going to be someone else who wants to horn in on that action. And that's entirely plausible. A monopoly could crop up somewhere, and they could throw up every barrier to entry that they can think of. But at some point, 
thanks largely to the monopolist's tendency to not innovate or improve the quality of their product, someone will break through into the market with a better product at a lower price. And competition, as well as all the market forces that come with it, will reassert themselves. You can even take that one level deeper and ask that if a monopoly is created, but the monopolist knows that there's always the threat of, a new, uh, of new competitors entering the market and disrupting their hold on it, then wouldn't that cause the monopolist to maintain and improve the quality of their product to make sure that they never lose a step? And wouldn't that same insecurity cause a monopolist to keep their supply up and their prices low to dissuade potential competitors from trying to take a run at them? And if those things are true, then is it possible that we could have an entirely monopolized market that still acts like a market in competition? Potentially, all the benefits, and there are potential benefits when it comes to efficiency, uh, all the benefits of a monopoly, along with the consumer surplus benefits that come with a competitive market. The answer to this is, of course, it depends. Maybe. I mean, it's possible. It kind of makes sense in the perverse way that most economics makes sense. Personally, <clears throat> I'm a bit skeptical because once a monopoly is established, the, the monopolist has every incentive to get to a point where they are secure in their position so that they can kick back, raise prices, and stop investing in quality. At the end of the day, the goal of a business is profit maximization. That's not a knock on them. That's not to say that businesses are greedy social parasites. They aren't. They're a very necessary part of a market economy and the drivers of innovation precisely because of that goal of profit maximization. But we need to keep in mind that despite all of the very real benefits that businesses bring in, in the market economy dynamic, they are seeking profit maximization with, with a kind of ruthless efficiency. And that once a stable monopoly is established, it can be incredibly hard to break up. I've got some, some future episodes planned on, on antitrust and just how difficult it can be to unravel monopolies. If such a situation were to be allowed under the laissez-faire attitude of, well, the, the markets will sort it all out eventually, there might be very real social consequences while we wait for that eventually to come around. To me, Assurances that a business couldn't or wouldn't possibly figure out a way to get to a, a, the point of a stable monopoly. Well, it's kind of like the, that, the old story of the scorpion and the frog. The scorpion asked the frog if he can ride on his back so that the frog can take him across to the other side of the river. And the frog says, no, absolutely not. You'll sting me if I let you get on my back. But the scorpion promises, promises uh, 
that he will not sting the frog. So the frog finally relents, lets him on his back, and they, the two of them start across the river. Then at about the ha- at, <clears throat> at about the halfway point, the scorpion stings the frog. And the frog says, Why'd you do that? You promised you wouldn't. And now we're both going to drown. And the scorpion says, I'm a scorpion. What did you expect? Maybe we can't trust to market forces, even in a state of monopoly. But I can't help but to think that a savvy business will always try to get to the point where they don't have to try anymore. Because trying costs money. It cuts into profits. And if businesses are inherently seeking profit maximization, then we need to treat them cautiously and not put too much trust in their assurances that they won't sting us halfway across the river. After all, what did we expect? And that's our show. As always, uh, if you'd like to tell me why I'm wrong... Come on out, join our Facebook group, uh, where you can post a comment or suggest suggest a topic for a future episode. Uh, if you're not a Facebook user, you can email me directly at okay. Let me tell you why you're wrong at gmail.com. All one word, no punctuation. Uh, be sure to take a minute and give the podcast a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, doing so, I I I. I I have to tell you, doing so really helps for the, the, the podcast to get noticed. The more reviews we've got, the higher up the, the charts we move, the more people notice us, the more listeners we get. Uh, special thanks, as always, to George Sacco for composing the music that I use in the intro and outro of the show. Uh, don't forget that I do have another podcast out there now. It's called Let's Plan a Wedding. And it's where my fiance and I discuss things involved in planning our wedding, as well as weddings in general. And of course, thanks to you all for listening. I'd like to send a special shout out to those who uh, recently started listening from Egypt. Uh, to you, I'd like to say Shukran Jazeelan. Uh, and as always, I immediately apologize for my pronunciation. Uh, I'd also like to congratulate the listeners out there in Denmark who have finally overtaken Great Britain as now uh, the country with the second most listens to this podcast. Uh, to, to all of you, I say, du ersai, and I hope that what was supposed to be Danish for you are awesome didn't come out of my mouth as some sort of horrible insult. Uh We will be back next week with Book 1, Chapter 5 of The Wealth of Nations, and then back in two weeks with another topic episode. With that, I've been Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong. This is going to blow your mind. Some say wealth is an illusion. Well, let's just see. For one moment it's here, and in the next, Monopoly. You don't have it, do you? Oh, yeah, I think I might. That's good, because a lot of the pieces are missing.